Hi guys, welcome to the Riches on Earth podcast. This is the podcast about the ways and means to find and unleash your true happiness, find your true north, and I hope you can wake up every day happy. So today I have with me Mr. Stephen Liu, a friend I've met on a broadcasting course, and I was just really, really keen to share a bit more about his story. Maybe Stephen, you can just introduce yourself, tell people about who are you, what you do, and what if they bumped into you on the street? Oh, hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me here at your show. Uh, most of the time, you know, people call me Stefan or Stephen. I just res- respond to both. It doesn't matter. He's <laughs> <laughs> very candid, right? Yeah. So I am a psychotherapist. I am also a clinical hypnotherapist. That is my official training. I also work as a positive psychology coach. What does that mean? I help individuals and groups and um, organizations to work on their strengths, on their resilience level, so that they can thrive. Apart from that, I also founded the School of Positive Psychology in the year 2007 uh, to spread the education of positive psychology. And I'm also the co-founder of Thrive Psychology Clinic that offers counseling and coaching sessions. And I'm also the co-founder of Nova Census, which is a consulting and training firm that brings positive organizational psychology to workplaces. So, and I personally, I love a lot of things in life and I'm just very happy to be here to share some of this information that it might benefit everyone. Wow, cool, man. Steven, so you run three businesses and I, I, I run one and I'm going crazy. How, how do you manage three? Like, do you have enough time to sleep, eat? <laughs> well, frankly speaking, sometimes I don't think that they are my businesses. That's number one, but it's more on a philosophical level. Uh, coming back, to, I'll come, to, come back to that later. Do I have time, eat, sleep, you know, or at things that while my fiance is complaining in, in a good way. <laughs> so sometimes she jokes about, you have no more time for me. Yeah. And I feel very apologetic. But having said that, yes, I would like to think in a way that having these projects or these businesses on hand, they are all very relevant to my mission and what I believe that I have to do. So by dedicating my energy and resources in, in this area, it has been very fulfilling. So in terms of, so we really need to prioritize sometimes. Okay, that's, yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I'm the same. My wife always says that uh, my real wife is my laptop because it's always on <laughs> and I'm on it all the time. I just wanted to ask you, uh, sorry, being a headhunter, I'm a bit... Uh, occupationally no, okay. interested. I wanted to find out a bit more about just in a nutshell, how did your whole background begin? Starting from advertising sales, you moved into informatics, which was a pretty big school back in the day. That was maybe 20 years ago. Um, and then you moved into path education. I've heard of them as four as well. Uh, I don't have a lot of information and uh, knowledge about what they've been doing. But can you just guide me through your path and uh, just share with us how did this whole thing blossom for you? Well, if you go back to the beginning, I started uh, as an advertising sales. I have a um, rather different journey because at the point of time, I was 21 years old and I started working after national service. So I didn't follow the normal academic path. I went to Polytechnic, um, Neon Poly. Uh, I studied for three months in mechanical engineering. 
And at the third month, I told myself that, oh my God, I cannot do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was tough and it was challenging. And at the point of time, of course, I was a younger, 17 years old. So I asked myself the question that I am not, definitely not going to become an engineer. So I went to army first. And by the time when I got out of it, so I told myself that I'm going to do part-time studies and maybe try my hand at getting some career experience. At the point of time, it was difficult because all my peers, they, after the national service, they continue to do their degree education because prior, they maybe have um, polytechnic qualifications or JC level qualifications or equivalent. And for me, at the point of time, I was like, I only have all levels, right? So it's difficult. So I told myself that I need really, uh, so my mindset was, I really need to work, work hard and try to gain at least a few years of experience. So by the time when my peers finish their degree education, which is three or four years later, I will at least have three or four years of work experience to, to, to buffer. Yeah, so that was my thought in your mind. So I tried and entered a, a couple of jobs and I went for many different interviews. And then in the end, I landed into, into advertising sales. And from there, I, or I was being thrown you know, into the world, into the corporate experience. It was very cutthroat and very competitive. And so after a few months, I realized that this may not be the right fit for me. But at the point of time, because I felt that I wasn't good enough. So I left the company and I went into education um, consultancy, which is education sales. So I went to informatics and it was a big firm. It was a public, public listed company at the point of time and they're yes. very, very big around Singapore. So I went in as a junior sales executive um, in education. So it was a big shift for me in that way. I, from advertising and marketing, which I have to serve companies and SMEs in particular, I converted into helping students to find their path, right? So it was on parallel for me at the same time because I'm also looking for ways to upgrade myself on a part-time basis. And then, so when I'm studying part-time, when I'm also working at the same time, so I meet these students together. So I felt that we were in the same journey together at the point. What really sticks was when I, I was there for three years and every day from Monday, including up to Sundays, we, we worked really hard because we have our road shows. We were really going for the numbers and the revenues, trying to sell all the programs that we can. At the same time, we also need to work with different universities and students, stakeholders. So at the end of the, I would say in that career, I did well because I was one of the uh, top revenue generators and also in terms of performance. So I climbed quite fast, but I was still very youngish, right? And so remember coming back to the part, I was concerned about my friends. They go and overseas and study or they're studying here in Singapore and then they're going to graduate with a degree and I didn't. Uh, so somehow I, I forgot about that thought in mind, but I just really focused on Korea. And being in sales and marketing and business development um, position, I really need to produce the numbers. So because of that, I was good in what I do. I was promoted to, from a sales executive to senior sales executive to a sales manager to senior sales manager to assistant director. And so I was leading a team on my own. 
And I think the time was a bit daunting because at the age of 24 years old, I was one of the uh, youngest chap. Of us, all of us are quite young. But I had to manage somebody who was like in the 45 years old. It was difficult because, you know, thinking about experiential alignment, there's a lot of misalignment, right? Yes. So I learned through the hard way. Yeah, of course, you're the best person to know, Jeremy. <laughs> Pace people, right? <laughs> so on that note, I, I learned the fast track. And by the end of my career at informatics, I, when I left, I went to another education firm that is called Path Education Group. So yes. it was a very, very small firm at the point of time. And they were only offering IT education. Yeah. So before that, when I was at informatics, I was in charge of postgraduate and also psychology education. Right. That's when I was exposed to psychology. And I also started taking programs in psychology and psychotherapy, uh, which is actually hypnotherapy at a point. So when I go over to Path Education, I told my CEO that, so he came to me and said, oh, we have a job opening, there's a job opening for corporate education training manager, something along that line, bringing corporate training, IT training to companies. So I applied for the job and I got the return. And they say that, you know what, you're, you're, you do really, your prior experience in education is in higher education, not really in corporate training, but we are keen to take a look at you and see what comes out. So I went for the interview, first round with uh, BD, Business Development uh, Director. Then he said, I'd like you to meet the CEO. So when I went to this, meet the CEO, I did a presentation. You know, presentation. Nobody asked me for it because I'm so used in presenting myself, presenting ideas. So I did a presentation, you know, track record, uh, my ideas, my future plans. If I go to enter the company, this is what I'm going to do. It's not called for. This is what I have in mind being um, a business development person. So when I met a CEO, we spoke up to each other for out three hours. And he said that, well, the position is corporate. Um, account manager, but I think that we're going to offer you something else instead. We will create an arm for you. We will design this new position for you because we see that you have a lot of strength and experience in higher education. So, will you want to take the job? So, I say yes, but I need to have some more resources. Apart from me, I would like to bring, please raise your budget. I will bring two of my ex staff that reports to me to come over so that we can build the business unit for you. So we started from there. Then I started um, psychology, applied psychology training for the school path. Then I also bring in more, within, a few, within one month, two months, we bring more, uh, we, we recruited quite a number of students and then we did the talks ourselves. I also started recruiting psychologists. I started recruiting teachers. Then within half a year, from the team of two plus me three, it became up to like eight to ten. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say here that the numbers double and triple. Yeah. And of course, there's other backstories in the uh, in that experience. If I could just share one quickly, that might be relevant. So I got promoted fast. I became a regional director from that position. So I started taking not just Singapore, Singapore, Malaysia, um, Hong Kong, and Australia. So at the point of time, I was at 26 years old. I was the youngest guy in the team of directors, 
non-executive directors, or then they're in the 40s or, or, or that kind of age group. But I was the one who brought in the numbers. And so by the point of time when Singapore was the main HQ, I, we had around 20 to 30 over people in education sales, in marketing, in operation, into the services, and even in the academic. So we become a sizable group. And we became re really popular in Singapore for applied psychology. And we were the only ones that offered diplomas in applied psychology. That was before Polytechnics offered diploma level psychology program. I saw, the, I saw the market, so I created it. I believe in it because I believe that studying psychology is a huge, important essence of how we align our inner thoughts to how we make sense of the world. It improves communication, leadership, you know, health in many different ways. It's cardinal, it's what I believe in. So on that, on that note, I, we ran, you know, we will say that when I ran, I ran with adrenaline, but it was a marathon, so I ran. And the next thing that at the point of time, my CEO said that, you know what, we are going for listing in um, one of the countries, right? And we go for IPO. And so when we go for IPO, you who brought in this amount of uh, revenue plus the BD and the FC financial controller, so all of you will be become millionaire immediately because when we got listed yes, and of course. all that stuff. Yeah. Right, so we worked very hard. So I told my team about listing, and we were all very driven, you know. But um, so the listing, we had in approval, uh, in principle approval. Yeah. Then before the listing actually occurred, my CEO uh, sold the company to another bigger education corporation. Yeah, it's for fifteen million dollars. Yeah, because yeah, so there was a shift in the last minute direction. And at the point of time, I was a bit shocked. Everyone was a bit shocked because the direction changed. Yeah. So long story short, nutshell, CEO wants the money fast. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And he cashed out. So he cashed out. 50, uh, and then, for, so there was an M&A. And you know, M&A, you know, big company and small company. Yeah. And so we were the smaller company. We got, so the next thing, of course, they want to get rid of uh, us. Yeah, but they didn't understand the whole, the how was it brought up, the build up of the team and everything. Yeah. So, so I left uh, at a point of time and I was distraught, down, dis depressed, in, uh, not clinically depressed, but really depressed. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I, I still remember I used to live by the suitcase, you know, like one week I'm in Singapore, one week in Malaysia, one week in Hong Kong, one week in Australia. And the time it was um, at 27 years old, 26, 27 years old, I, I mean, I was also having fun at the same time, but that was what I was going through. And my buddy, Gabriel, he, I, I remember that he encouraged me. He said that, so I went to him and said, no, Gabriel, I'm so sad that I could be, uh, earn my first 1 million, you know, for the IPO, right? And this is what happened. I felt like I got played out. And then he said, he thought for a long while and he said, that, you know what, Stefan, because of what you've done to the company and now they're being bought over, I think that if you do something on your own, you'll be as good as well or even better. Yeah. So I got depressed for a short while because it was a big hit. There was a lot of accountability because I need to tell my team because I was the one who spread the message to everybody. 
And because when I have the payout at the point of time, I wanted to give them like 200,000. This is why I, sh- I shared with them openly. So yeah. what, what do you get as a cash out? I mean like, not asking you for exact numbers, but um, what do you get as a cash out when your CEO gets 15 million compared to yeah. IPO? Was it a big difference or did he just run away, didn't give you guys anything or he gave you a token? Or? A token. It's just a token. Just a token. He didn't say, say, I'm so sorry about it and here's $1 million. No, no. And the token was miserable. <laughs> I don't want to say. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, uh, it was, I would say miserable comparing to the, uh, the, the multi-millions that he got. And the token only was given because I asked for it. I tried. Yeah. Uh, well, it taught me a lesson end of the day because I really believe in the mission of uh, spreading psychology, improving mental health for people. So that was my mission. I was championing it, right? Running it. And, but end of the day, when you work with a CEO that is only purely business driven, right? And then we realized that from day one, the values are misaligned. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the biggest lesson that I learned and the biggest lesson is not the loss of money, but the biggest lesson is that if I want to be a conscious, lead a conscious business, I need to have conscious partners to work with. And he wasn't the one. Yeah. And of course, coming back to what my buddy has mentioned, he said that you can do it. So, so I, I had the idea and I told myself that I wanted to do something on my own. And so I took maybe a six months to eight months break. I traveled to like 10 wow. countries. Yeah. And I said that I wanted to start um, a school in psychology and I came across positive psychology at the point. And of course, to, for those who are not aware, what is positive psychology is a science that focus on, of course, many people will think that uh, it teach people how to be happy or positive, but it's not really the case. Positive psychology is focused on the human sides of things that we have forgotten for many years. Instead of survival, we focus on our positive emotions, our strengths, our potential. Yeah. So that it, so we always say that how is it like to become the best version of a self? True? Yes. Yeah. So being an athlete or being a professional golf player or a sports person you become the best version of ourselves in terms of own capacity, right? So yes. positive psychology is the same. So we train people to achieve the best version of themselves in terms of performance, resilience, relationship, leadership, and how to flourish and thrive. So that's a main goal, right? And on, on that note, on that note, we, so for, for the school, I started that because I wanted to spread uh, a science to enable people to become thought leaders, and and why do I want to empower people to become people to become thought leaders? Is because um, I went to the Institute of Mental Health in two zero zero five. We had a site visit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I was with Path, and the PR director was showing us around, you know, and saying that oh, we are upgrading our facilities, and by two zero one zero, we can increase our patient size up to ten thousand patients. Because World Health Organization has reported that the main problem of the world by then would be depression and suicide. Yeah. So it hit me to a personal level is because that I have a personal history of depression. 
And so at the point of time when I was in 2005 at IMH, I asked myself the question that what can I do as an individual, even though I'm so small and so little, this is a world phenomenon that, that is going to happen, like world depression, right? What can I do as an individual to make a small difference? So the idea, the idea was incubated uh, within me. So when the, my ex-company went through the M&A and I was told to leave, right? So, at, so in 2007, I said that I, need, I would like to start this. Yeah, and it was an opportunity waiting for me to start because if let's say the M&A didn't happen, right? I wouldn't have started this. <laughs> so it's a blessing in disguise. Yeah, so the life happened to you in, 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 in that what has happened to you helped you instead of it happened to you and then it brought you down. I just wanted to ask a bit more. I mean, like uh, with regards to the School of Positive Psychology, with all your businesses, um, the good stuff and what it's about, I'll keep it for our next podcast. But I wanted to ask you a bit more about what made you decide that you had the capability to start and then at that age, when you tasted success so early, that means you go from an executive to a director within, I would say, seeing here is about three years in total. You went mm. from executive to director at, at informatics. Um, why didn't you just find another job, ask for a better pay, and then tell them that you give me this pay and uh, I will hit the targets for you. Why don't you just do that? That's what everybody does. You mean that when I was back in informatics, why I didn't go to another no, uh, company? When, sorry, when PATH happened. Oh, PATH, okay. Yeah, why don't you just find another job? Why, why take the risk on your own? Oh, coming back to PATH, when the MAA happened, the new management spoke to me individually and said that um, you're overpaid, mm-hmm. <laughs> number one. Yeah, and number two, we have some job opportunities opening up in China. Yeah, so we would like to reduce your pay by 50% and, and bring you, ask you to go to China to take over some of the uh, offices. So indirectly, they ask you to go. Lah. Yeah, yeah. Then why, why, not just find, why don't you just find another job? Find a job with another education platform, ask for yeah. higher pay, and then just sell, sell yourself again. That's what everybody in Singapore does. Mm. I mean, like, everybody is trained to look for the safest way out, the lowest risk, highest reward. Why don't you just follow that? Do what your friends do. Why not? This goes back goes back to the point of when I was in IMH th- during the site visit whereby they talk about the world epidemic would be depression and because I have a personal depression story so it hit me to the core and I wanted to solve the problem mm. so why I didn't after path why I didn't go and find another job for survival is because that I think that that was a time for me to do something I need to be, so what my, my exact thoughts were, I need to, I cannot work for anyone else because if I go and create something for anyone else and there's another M&A <laughs> or then what happened, you know, I'll go through the same thing, right? So I need, so I want to solve the problem of like mental health issues and to increase well-being education. So I've realized that I have to do it on my own. Amazing, amazing. I mean, uh, coming from my heart, um, starting a business has been extremely hard and even being a person who's quite determined, I sometimes think about like, why am I doing all this to torture myself? Why don't I just go the normal path that everybody goes, right? And, but I can see your, your true passion. So you are 
you are one of the, I would say, the 1% in the world who are creating jobs for others through passion. That means even if your true passion made you bankrupt, you will still try it again and again. It's not something that you will just try for five minutes and then you say, just give up. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done it for 12 years. Yep. You, your words, I can't agree more on that. But that was, this is also a type, your words also came as a timely, not reminder, but also a reality check. Because I have been doing this for so long, for the last 12 years, when people come to me and say that, hey, Stefan, you know, you, it's admirable that what you're doing, you're making a difference, and you have a lot of guts and courage to start something on your own at 27 years old. I, it didn't hit me to, to take that with recognition, to recognize what I've done or as a, a proud milestone. It didn't. The reason being so is because that back then at 27 years old, after that M&A and everything, I, so when I started a business at the point of time, I, I, felt my, I felt that I had a crazy idea. <laughs> Yeah, and I felt that my strength was to create a platform for like-minded people to gather and to, I didn't think from the way that I'm going to create jobs for people. Yeah, that was more like by the way, on the way sort of thinking. But my core belief was that this has to be done is because that if nobody is going to do this, more people is going to suffer. And my experience in education and not being in Singapore, people like performance, certification, and recognition. So the best way is to run a school, which I have this experience, limited experience at the point of time, and bring education in psychology education and progress them further so that we will we can bring this to a higher a higher height. And the priority of mental health education is appreciated and not undermined by the worst problem because we are so driven by GDP and results and profitability and material consumerism. And so let's say many of my friends, we went into the banking sector, trading, because this is what has been told that this, this is success, right? So for me, it was more of success was more like being able to do something that's fulfilling. Yeah. And doing something that is fulfilling also means that you can Hang get on, hate. Uh, sorry. So Steven, I just wanted to um, move on and find out a bit more about you so that people can understand a bit more about how entrepreneurs are made and how entrepreneurs are born. So maybe just share with me, like, what were you like between the age of um, 10 to 20? What were you as an individual? If I bump into you, who were you back then between the age of 10 to 20? Can I just jump in and share a perspective about entrepreneurship first before I answer the 10 to 20? Sure. Okay. I have never considered myself as an entrepreneur. I... I'm serious about this. I have never considered myself as an entrepreneur. I have never considered myself as a boss. I have never considered myself as a leader. I think why I want to say this because if people who are listening in who wants to start out your own business or wants to become an entrepreneur, yes, 
Yeah. It's, if you are doing it because it's cool, if you are doing it because you can become an entrepreneur or a boss, don't do it. Because you are doing it for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. You are doing it for the brand that people will look up to you. Then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. If you want to do it for money only, and then you are also not within my wavelength, I will not also be encouraging you. I think the word entrepreneur has its own way of definition, but I'm, if you have a good mission that you think that you can impact the world or help to solve some issues or to make people, in some ways, there's positive attributes and you believe in it and, and go and do it. Yeah. Then the titles that follows you, the entrepreneur, the boss, the money and all the business opportunity, they will come to you naturally. But yes. if you're doing it because you want to earn money, you want to make a fast one or whichever you have started from, I think that it will not last you for a long time. This is what I believe. Just to be on paper, just to be on the news. Yeah, it won't last that long. Nope. Yeah, because it's not from your core. It's from, it's from your need for survival. And even you earn all the money in the end of the day, I guarantee that you won't be happy because it will be an empty shell. And this happens to many parts of the world that uh, which is called affluenza. You look good on the outside, very good. You have all the sparkling things, branded stuff, cars. You are rich by inside, emptiness and rotten. Yeah, and people start to doubt, oh, is this person befriending me? It's because I am this person, you know? Yeah, uh, we can go to that topic totally different uh, in a different talk, but I just want to tell you that for those who are listening in, you want to become an entrepreneur because you want to make rich, become rich overnight or whichever. I think something is lacking. Yeah, it's probably one of the worst journeys I've ever been on. It's so hard, so tough, and uh, the stress is 10 times what I used to have as as an employee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, going back to where we were, like just yep. to find out a bit more about you, how do you grow mm. up? What were you like between the age of uh, 10 to 20? I was... Uh, I was... Uh, Depressed child, as I mentioned to you. Yeah. Uh, a background experience, if I can talk about it, that I went through uh, some sort of a family family tragedy. Yes. So when I was one year old, um, I experienced, uh, there was a family tragedy that there was a death in the family. Some of my family members were being murdered. Yes, you heard it right. They are being murdered. And that was my grandmother, two of my uncles and my auntie, and they are all in their youth and even like... Um, very young. They were being gunned down. Very explicit details I'm telling you right now. And this happened in Singapore. In, yeah, in 1980. And to make, so it shocked, that was the news that shocked everybody. And what followed after was my, of course, my parents, my relatives, they were all shocked and depressed because, and they went to the state of paranoia, confusion, anxiety, nervousness, and trauma. And for me, I was, I was one year old. And what it didn't help is because that, that event happened on my birthday. So for many years to come, when I was growing up, I couldn't celebrate my birthday. And I didn't know why. So when I go to kindergarten, when I go to school, even primary school, 
uh, which is like 10 years and above, I couldn't celebrate my birthday. So when I was younger, when I started to make sense of the world, I asked my mom that, hey, how come I, can't celebrate, I couldn't celebrate my birthday, whereas my classmates can celebrate their birthdays? So at the point of time, my mom would be saying that, you know, um, something bad happened to the family and it happened on your birthday and being Chinese, traditional, collectivistic thinking, there was, and because, by the way, the murders are wounding close. After seven years, uh, they, uh, the police closed the case because there's no DNA technology at the point of time. So I had to deal with the aftermath and so my mom said that, please keep it to yourself. This is our secret. Don't tell anybody because so being young, I held on to the burden, burden of holding a secret and I call it my birthday secret, a dark secret. And I promised my mom that I won't tell anybody. But that didn't stop me from being curious, right? So in the end, I didn't get celebrate my birthdays. I'll be having a lot of questions why. I can't get the answers because there were no, you couldn't find a murderers. There's no closure. And afterwards, I, so I started celebrating birthdays for my friends. <laughs> So when it was my friend's birthday, I was very happy for them, you know, because that was only my opportunity to celebrate birthdays through their birthdays. Does it make sense? Yeah. So, and of course that years, um, the aftermath was bad because I grew up in the uh, turbulent environment. My dad was alcoholic. He was depressed. My mom was highly anxious. My sister was also depressed. So I didn't know that it wasn't, not, not, it wasn't normal. Yeah. And... So I went to school and I couldn't pay attention to studies. And I don't know whether for, for you're familiar with trauma. It's a bit different from depression. Trauma is that once something hit and it's not being processed, the whole mind will continue to become very cloudy. There's no clarity. Because all the resources of the mind is trying to cope with the pain that is constant. Yes. Yeah. So if I use the analogy of a fish tank and there are fishes inside the aquarium and a trauma happens, it means that all the fishes will go and hide inside their stones and coral. And then after the uh, shock disappears, the, the, all the sand and the dust settles down, the fishes will come out and feel safe, right? But being in my situation, which was acute trauma and chronic trauma afterwards, because of domestic violence, alcoholism, and everything and whatnot, my fish tank aquarium was constantly murky. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine that if you dive, you are diving in water with, without visibility, very little visibility, and which means that your heightened senses, you have to look around, look for survival, or what's going to happen next, you have to react fast. So in the current environment, my mind was busy surviving given to the daily stresses. So when I go to school, because I can't tell anybody what, what was happening because it was a secret, plus ongoing issues, I couldn't concentrate. My attention was split. And I didn't feel safe anywhere. I didn't feel safe at home. I didn't feel safe at school because of, of course, being bullied and other issues, being weaker in my academics. And of course, at the point of time, I didn't have all this vocabulary to talk about, right? Yeah, so to come back to a question of 10 to 20 years old, it was turbulent. It was, when I go to school, what I could pay attention was only on two things, play, okay, 
because play is everyone likes to play, right? And the second thing I could pay that I love to pay attention on was people who are suffering. Why? Because I was having a pain inside me. And I thought that because it's a secret, right? I couldn't tell anybody. So I thought that it is common that some many of my classmates or my schoolmates, right, it's a common affair that people are murdered. This is what I thought. <laughs> and I thought that someone's grandmother or father or mother are also being murdered. I thought it's a common affair. I didn't know this is a secret, right? So I started looking out for people who were suffering and then they are crying in the corner. I'll approach them. And then I didn't know that I started micro-counseling ever since. And I go over to them and get them to open up to talk to me. And then slowly and surely, they will open up with their tears and with their pain stories. And I was just hopeful that maybe they'll be telling me that or some of, someone in the family also being murdered. And I was just curious about how did they cope with it. But most often, I found stories instead about you know, their parents are going through divorce or someone in the family, family was really sick or somebody they love, like grandmother or grandfather has died. And that was that. And so, uh, so at the point of time when I was 10 to 10, or when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, I was going through that phase of like being curious, attracted to these people. And then after they were sobbing their eyes out, I still remember, and then I'll be looking at them, okay, what else? And you're like, no, that's about it. And then I was like, did anyone die or being that's murdered? All. I said, no. <laughs> that's, that's all. <laughs> yeah. And, and how is this all relevant is because that from the place of pain and suffering, it becomes curiosity for me. And this curiosity heightens. It exploded. I was like, there must be somebody else. So I started asking more and more people. I started having conversations with adults, um, teachers and everyone, but I didn't tell them what happened to me. And I realized that there's no one. It's, it's quite annoying, right? And so when I hit 18 years old or 16, uh, 17, 18 years old, when I started realizing that nobody else was in a similar situation, I couldn't find somebody else who could understand me, I got really depressed because it's like, oh my God, this is so strange, right? And I started blaming myself that uh, probably they died on my birthday because I was in jinx. I started blaming myself that uh, bad things will happen. And, but... That is the dark side of things. On the light side of things, because I have so many years of curiosity, I started picking out skills of how to look at people who are suffering. I start looking at people of even strangers on the bus, whether they are suffering and can feel. And I started to look out for people who are in distress. I started going, approaching them in different ways. Yeah, and I, so I got a lot of stories and conversations. They started telling sharing with me their personal philosophy of life, life and uh, I started asking them, what's the meaning of suffering? What's our meaning of life? How do, can we be happier? How do we heal? How do we forgive when you don't know who to forgive? How do we form uh, relationships? This is cardinal for me is because that my dad, uh, during that psychological state of mind when he was being disrupted and being depressed, I grew up in an environment being told by my dad and my mom that you couldn't trust your friends, you couldn't trust people around you. And so there's a lot of paranoia. We have to um, double lock the door, look out the window, is there somebody locking behind? When you go back home, are you being followed? There's a lot of paranoia because the murders happen in the home. You know? Yeah. So I grew up 
looking at my back on my shoulder. I grew up, need to look at the nearest exit sign. I grew up, need to know that in a normal conversation in the coffee shop, I need to know whether that I, if, if, if that's it, there's a crisis, I need to defend myself. Do I have a weapon that I can use? You know, it, it, I was surviving. Even in a normal, in a normal uh, conversation, I have to like, look at other resources. And, and so that was me from 10 to 20 years old. Wow, that's really harsh because I know I'm talking about 10, 20, but uh, if you told me about the trauma happening at the age of one, uh, psychologically, all kids, I have a kid as well, all kids uh, develop their mindsets, their characteristics and their general uh, mentalities between the age of one to eight, the first eight years of their life. So I can't imagine this happening to you for the first eight years of your life. And then you carrying it into the next, um, from the age of uh, 10 to 20, which is the age where you are chasing, uh, I wouldn't say chasing, but you are pursuing puberty, you're pursuing curiosity of uh, the other genders, the, the things that you are looking forward to being an adult. And then while we are looking forward at something, you are looking backwards all yep. the time. So, wow, this insane I don't, I don't know like how do you end up today still positive is amazing so let's transition so from uh, moving on to 20 to 30 that was something crazy as well um, you told me about you managing to quit poly and then pursuing work pursuing um, a project and a, and a chase which is to match up with your friends without uh, a poly diploma so firstly I want to ask like who made you who made you quit poly or how do you make the decision? I mean it's the best decision in your life, but how do you do that at the age? <laughs> well, before I entered poly, I went to a neighborhood secondary school, right? I I was in the express stream. Uh, from PSLE, I was borderline, so I could choose either I could go express or normal. <laughs> same for me, same for me. <laughs> same for you. Okay, yes. cool. So, of course, you choose express, right? Right. I mean, like, you just try. But when I hit my, uh, when I did GCO levels at the point of time, I was just completely gone in terms of like, I was just outside playing, constantly late for school. I couldn't concentrate because I didn't find meaning in studying at all. And so I didn't study for my O levels. I mean, like, didn't study hard enough. I just look at it, you know, and just go with it, thinking that I'll just fail. But surprisingly, I passed many of them. It's all C6. And, and at the point of time, I was a bit shocked because my friends who study really, really hard, they get all the A's, but maybe one subject they are really weak at. And maybe the core modules like English, mathematics, or science. And they were devastated because they couldn't go to JC or Poly. But for me, it's like I didn't study. I got a lot of C6. I also failed some subjects. I was like, oh my God, if I have studied a little bit more. <laughs> and there was some, it's quite strange at the That's positive time. psychology. That's positive <laughs> psychology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so when I went to Polytechnic, uh, I, I repeated one year as a private student because I didn't have, uh, so I retook two modules, uh, two subjects. And then I got 27 points in total. It's very bad. And it's not good enough. But I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. So I could only enter nursing or engineering, some of the engineering modules in, in Polytechnic, right? And when you are 17 years old, 
you have no idea why it's engineering or business or accounting. At the point of time, I didn't know what it was, right? And I felt that it was so unfair that at the age of 16, 17 years old, you have to make a life decision, the first difficult decision of what to study. Then to make things worse, people will tell you different feedback. Oh, you should study this, you should study that. Then in the end, that you don't form your own autonomy. You get so confused. Yeah, and adults will always think that they know the best, right? So to me, at the point of time, I said, that, okay, I could only enter two, engineering or nursing. So I wanted to choose nursing because I felt that there's a lot of girls. <laughs> so I don't mind going to do nursing, right? Yeah, I'm quite cool. Like I'll be surrounded by girls. I think I like girls a lot, so I should go and study that. Yeah. And then the macho side of me at the point of time, 17 years old, maybe I should become an engineer because people look up to engineers, but I have no idea what they do. It's <laughs> like crazy when, things. I find that it's crazy when bad grades allow us to, to join engineering. Like how does that correlate, right? It's like probably one of the toughest courses to take. Yes. And it's one of the highest dropout rate in, in poly. I think at the point of time, uh, they were like, I don't know, 3,000 over students, but I think the dropout was like 800 to 900. I don't know how many. I forgot, really. There was the numbers I had back then. Yeah, so coming back to what you say, it's, it's very difficult, right? Uh, why I dropped it, why I dropped off engineering is because there was a, my buddy, which is Gabriel, as I mentioned earlier, he also entered engineering. <laughs> so we were buddy from outside. Yeah. We used to hang out at yeah, we used to hang out at this place called Faiz Plaza, but that's another story. And then we went to Poly to, together and he went into civil engineering, I think. And then I went to mechanical engineering. So both of us, sometimes we attend classes and sometimes we don't. And then we keep meeting up. Then after like the second or third month into our course, I asked him, uh, Gabriel, do you know what you're studying? He said, no. <laughs> I see he, he, he doesn't understand. Then he asked me, do you know? I do not know also. I have no idea. So at the back of our mind, I think that we were finding, we were facing a lot, we have started to face a lot of doubts and uncertainty. Then what made me stop uh, was, I still remember at one point, <laughs> I don't know what is this too raw. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's too raw. Go ahead, right? Was, uh, okay, there's two points. One point was, one part was where I went to the lab. You know, as mechanical engineering classes, you have to go to the lab and you have to wear the protective earpieces and the goggles and whatnot. Then you have to use this machine to drill, drill into the beat to create some parts. I don't understand what is it for, like some machinery parts, right? And so I was doing that, drilling. And in the drilling, drilling process, you need to, there's a, you have to also activate the coolant and the coolant yep. is supposed, yep. yeah. You're, you're, you're training mechanical engineering, right? No, no, but I, I watch <laughs> a lot of uh, engineering videos and all. Wow, you watch them? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the coolant is supposed to... Cool the drill bit. Cool the drill uh, bit so it won't... Yeah, prevent yeah. The, the overheating and then the, yes. the shape from going uh, off, off shapes, basically. Spot on, we have said. So as, as, at the point of time, you know, we are students, we are doing that. So... We, the next, so we are, there's a space between the next student because everybody have a station on their own to do the drilling, right? Yes. So I think somebody on the left, he or she or whatever, I forgot what happened. The drill bit broke because the coolant wasn't, it broke. 
Over and it flew, me. it flew past me. And I think it hit the pillar next to me. There's a dent in the pillar and then it flew past my face. I, I couldn't remember the sequence of event. It was just very close. And then I told myself, whoa, like, so I started to ask myself the question that, am I going to, am I going to work in this such a career <laughs> for many years to come down the road, you know, working on this and have, yeah, so that was my first realization. Yeah. And then the second realization was that I went to the school, uh, class and then there was a teacher who, oh, this is the raw part. Okay. So there's this teacher, he was teaching this uh, one of the modules that is not related to engineering. It's about values and how to become a better, how to become a better student, teaching about ethos and all that stuff, right? And, and he was a very autocratic lecturer. But to me, he was a bully. Yeah, so he bullied students. He intimidated students into submission. So he was very top-down, very typical, top-down. Then he talked you, and then he will, um, he will talk down to the kids, to the teachers, who were all children or teenagers at the point of time. He will talk down, he will intimidate them, and that was his style. Yeah, but I find him that he was quite fascinating because of his mannerism, you know. So in between respecting him and finding him entertaining, I was on that on that note. And surprisingly, many other classes sometimes I skip, but I didn't skip this class because I was quite drawn to his character. And so one fine day, um, then he had this philosophy that uh, you can never be late for class. If you're late for class, right, you are wasting not your future, you're wasting your parents' money, resources, and beliefs on you. So he will hammer the points home in that way. Yeah. And so one day I was there and then I was sitting at the back okay, of the class and in front of me, there were, of course, rows of students. And there was, in front of me, there was this Indian uh, lady student, classmate. And she was on the plum side. Of, she was on the plum side. And I, because of her size, I couldn't really see the lecturer. So I leaned back and make my, I rocked my chair back and uh, be supported by the wall so that I could see the lecturer. Okay? And the lecturer, after a while, he was, he was talking, he was teaching about fishbone diagram, like why students fail their examination. Let's explore why they fail examination. What are the reasons they will fail? So after he was looked, so I just paid attention to him. Then suddenly he turned around and looked at me and he said that gentleman, the gentleman at the back, that was me, right? He said, they say, the chair, have, the chair has four legs, but why do you only sit on its two legs? So, what I did was, I didn't want to say that, hey, because this girl in front of me was on the plum side, was blocking my vision, so I have to do this, right? So I didn't say it. I just smiled to him. Then I just sat back onto the four legs, right? And then he said that, I want you to stand up. So I was a bit confused, like why? So I did it. Then he said, no, I want you to stand up in the middle of the class. Can you please come forward to the middle of the class? <laughs> yeah. And before I carry on, is your podcast explicit or non-explicit? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, that um, I went to the middle of the class, confused, and all of my classes, classes were looking at me, right? And then he will say that, okay, now I want you to raise one of your legs. So I was a bit confused. Why? But I just did it because he was an authority of a student. Maybe he wanted to share something that's useful. So without thinking, I just raised one leg up. Then he said, 
raise it higher. So I raise it higher, raise it higher. So he, uh, until it was like 90 degrees, one of my legs is 90 degrees, right? And then when I was in that position, he turned around and he addressed the class. You know what he said? He said that, class, there is a, there is a clown standing with one leg in the class. And I was like, oh, shock. Like he asked me to stand in one leg and then he addressed the class and, told, and said that I was a clown. And I was like, hey, what's happening, right? I was confused, I was shocked, and then I was a bit like taken aback. And before I could analyze all this, there was a dead silence in the class. And then he said that, now I would like you to answer, tell me, uh, contribute to the question that I'm asking the class. Why do students fail their examination? So at the point of time, I need to re uh, reiterate the fact that many answers has been contributed. Right? So I say that oh, maybe uh, students fail their examination because the examinations are too tough. Okay? And then what he did was he turned around to the class again and he said that this is the type of answer you will expect from a clown. Okay? And then, he, then, then, then what happens next? I was shocked. Then he said that now you can clown, you can just lower your leg and go back to the class, go back to the seat again. And so I went back and I sat down. So imagine what happened. I was shocked, I was distressed. So I didn't know that he was using me to elicit fear and control with other students because he does that all the time. But he singled me out, but I felt that it was unfair. And I only have his class every Monday at 8 a.m. So. I, do, couldn't, I couldn't process it. So the next few days, I couldn't sleep. The image, I was traumatized. So the image kept coming back. I was angry. I was, I was agitated. I was sad. I, was, I, it was, I felt that I was being bullied by a teacher who was supposed to teach me, but he bullied me. And so then that came to the decision that I wanted to, I need to quit. So I bumped to Gabriel. And then he, then he said what happened. Then I told him that, Gabriel, I'm very upset because this is what happened to me. And let's quit uh, school together. Then he said, okay. Then he said he also wanted to quit school at the point of time. And then he said, let's put in our forms and quit together, right? Then I told him that, no, I am not going to quit yet. I am going to go back to the class next Monday. And then I am going to retaliate to, I am going to, retaliate to the teacher. And... If not, I cannot rest. I cannot resolve this issue with my mind. So, next Monday <laughs> happened, and I walk in at eight fifteen on purpose. And you could see when I opened the door, you could there was a stark silence in the class, and he was like shocked because nobody there to be late for his lessons because he's that domineering, right? So I went to the the last part of the class, my usual seat. And I challenged him, long story short. And he said that, gentlemen, do you know what time is it now? Then at about the time, I informed the whole class, I said that it is 8.15. Why do you ask me for time? You have no money to buy a watch, is it? <laughs> so I started challenging him, you know, and then he was furious. He asked me to get out of the class. And then I said, no, I'm not getting out of the class. It's because that you said that I have to go to school if not, I'm wasting my parents' money. You said that, so I have to be here. And he was very annoyed. So he said that you better get out now. Uh, if not, I will call the authorities to be here. 
So what I did was I went to the middle of the class and of course at the point of time I told him that, do you remember who I am? And he like, he refused to have eye contact with me. Then the whole class was like a bit shocked. I just let me remind you that I am the clown standing with one leg in the class last week. Yeah. And then I turn around and look at the classmates and say that, I'm so sorry, every one of you. I don't want to disrupt your learning process because your parents pay you money to study here. I'm just here today. It's because that I felt that what he did to me last week was unfair and it was not the right thing to do. So I'm just here to want, I want an apology from him. Yeah. So, yeah. So, of, of course, he didn't apologize <laughs> because he's a teacher. He wants to be in power, right? And then I, what I did was, I think I snatched the transparency when he was teaching halfway and then I threw at his face. And then I just say that, well, if you don't want to talk to me, I shall wait for you outside to have a conversation to see how we can resolve this then. And then, uh, yeah. Then, of course, I closed the door and I pointed my middle finger and I said the F word in front of him and I said, then I woke up. So this is how I got out of school. <laughs> wow, that's a crazy story. I mean, like, actually, that's very, very true. Uh, even for me, I've, I've probably done the same, not so, not so extreme, but uh, my teacher did say, like, uh, why do people fail exams? I say, it's probably because the teachers are not good enough. Mm. Yeah, so I, I've been through the same. But it's good. I, I think I see this as a rebellious attitude has been something as a trait of many successful people. And many people who have found their way tend to be rebellious. People who can't find mm. their way tend to be conformist. They just follow whatever uh, was told to them. So the, the main reason I was asking you about what made you quit was I was wondering whether you were fear social stigma. Your your family scold you, say, hey, why you quit? You pay this, you wasted money. Or your friends will ask you, hey, we are all in school. So imagine 100 friends, 99 of them are in school. One of them is you. You are not in school. You are just uh, at home every day. You know, I've seen friends who are like that and they lose their way because they feel they are so away from the norm. Mm. So the cool thing is you didn't lose your way. But uh, if I can infer correctly, it's also because Gabriel was there. So every time somebody makes a decision, either they are very strong-headed, that's why they did it, or probably they had an affirmation point. So Gabriel is probably mm. your affirmation point that he can support you to say, yes, you can do it. So because he gave you that opinion, you didn't fear that social stigma. That's, that's what I was thinking. Maybe Gabriel is probably an anchor in your life that you didn't see back then. Yeah, he's definitely an anchor in my life. And... And so coming back to the part when we were deliberating whether we should quit the course because we didn't know whether it was the right course, the catalyst, the, the impetus was that event where it happened with the lecturer. Yeah. Wow. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry. I mean, everything happens for a reason. Yes. I, I hope he changed. Maybe, but maybe probably that was in the 90s. Probably things were such like all teachers were domineering. Uh, I was a kid in the 90s or so my teachers can uh, hit us, they can scold us, they can insult us. Yep. It was normal. So I think things have changed quite a lot. Um, yep. I wanted to ask a bit more about um, things such as stuff that I read about you. Uh, okay. Everybody knows like, I, I just want to share, uh, I asked this to Stefan before, what's his biggest accomplishment? I always thought he was going to say it's starting uh, TSPP, his school for the last 12 years. I thought that would be the biggest thing that would uh, 
warm his heart. Like he said, it's not really that. It's actually um, the students that become taught and opinion leaders, their progress to make impacts for their companies, communities, and schools that actually makes him happy. That's quite amazing. Um, because you are using your platform not for, I would say, personal gain, but you are using it to spread a message. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I wanted to ask you a bit more, which I read about, which was kind of interesting, was uh, can you share a bit more about heliotropism? You, you talk about heliotropism in one of your articles. I want to know a bit more about it because I think I've seen it before. I think I can correlate it, but I don't know how do we activate it and what are the factors that allow us to use it? Because I think it's one of the factors of self-driven or self-discovery, uh, self-discovery skills um, that people can have or, or rather we have in us but we don't know how to activate. Okay. Heliotropism comes from the Greek word helio, the sun or the light. And that everything, every living organism is light-seeking. So if you, if there's a gunny set of potatoes in a dark room, and maybe in that dark room, there's a small little window at the side with small little, not even bright light, just small little entry to the external wall, that potatoes in the room will start to grow and the, seed, the, seed, the seeding will grow towards the light. So what I try and say here, even in the most diet circumstances that the environment could not really provide to, or to nourish a normal growth, a living organism will want to survive and was go towards the light. And how is this relevant to being a human is that I feel that this is connected to resilience, that we are all heliotropic in that way. We are, of course, we want to say that we are a potato, but we are attracted to light. We are attracted to meaning. We are attracted to spirituality. We are attracted to universalism. We are attracted to something that is bigger than us. Even though when we are working every day, you know, trying to make ends meet um, for survival, for family, for everything, there's always a thought in our mind that what? We, always have, we are always constantly seeking for meaning or something that's bigger than us. And that is the light I talk about here. And how is this relevant to leadership or personal development, relationship? It is actually at the centerpiece of everything. Yeah. And if you look at a plant, <laughs> I don't know whether you have, of course, for those of you who have kept plants, if you, a plant will flourish and grow more greens and leaves towards the light source, and you yes. turn that plant, yeah, you turn the plant around, the plant will just gravitate towards the light again. Yes. Right? So how is this apparent and relevant to humans is that we sometimes we can get distracted, you know, into, I wouldn't say darkness or distractions or bad things that we know that's not good for us. There's always a part of us, right, want to go towards that light, to be more hopeful, to be more optimistic. I want to do good for ourselves and for other people. Yeah. And my personal, not say mantra, my personal belief is that if we can ankle and tap on that light, it will lead us to greater path, greater future. So some people will use the language of if you know your purpose, if you can realize your meaning and your purpose, that would be the way to go. 
So if I quickly jump in, of course, many people may know this word is called Ikigai. Uh, the Japanese word Ikigai is I-K-I-G-A-I. Okay. Ikigai is relevant to the light and, and relevant to what I do and what we provide for our students. And not just students, when they become graduates, they become our trainers and associates. They come back and work with us to do more social projects and business projects. So we create an ecosystem. And why is it relevant to this like an ikigai? Is that ikigai is a Japanese word to describe that when you, there are four spectrums. So the first one is that if you work on, in a job, you get paid. Okay? But you give you, it may give you some sort of job satisfaction, but after a while, you lose interest. The second part, if you pursue a passion, you are very, very, very driven and you, you are very, very engaged. But after a while, you start to wonder you can do more. Okay? And the third thing is that if you follow a hobby, you really enjoy doing it like play you know, and everything. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not sustainable. Okay? And the fourth one, would be if you do something that is meaningful and purposeful that you believe in like helping other people helping the world which any other directions that you want to do it is very liberating and you connect to the bigger purpose but it doesn't really pay you so ikigai is like uh passion passion means your strength uh in a way your job is for survival and the last one, i think the third one would be hobby and the fourth one is purpose and meaning please look it up again i'm not sure i'm getting this right ikigai is the sweet spot in the middle of this four spectrum so if you follow your light which is heliotropism like the questions in your mind you're curious about what can i do to save uh, to help this or to save, solve a problem for a community, from society, for parent, it can be any, any, anything. That that is meaningful. Maybe that is your ikigai light. Yeah, and coming back to what I do, I am in my ikigai space. So I, this is my job. I love what I do. I am good at it, and it serves the a purpose that I believe that will help the world or around me. And in the, for the students who come and learn positive psychology, even though it's a skills base, by the end of the day, we are helping them to think, to build confidence and optimism and strengths, psychological strengths, so that they could sometimes quit their job or do new things on their own to create their own ikigai. Yeah. I, I hope wow. that is a... <laughs> I, I just have one question. I do yes. agree with this uh, thing that um, we all have a light, we all have a thing called resilience. But I just want to ask you this question. Like, I don't know whether anybody has asked you this question, but um, you say that all humans are resilient, all humans have a light. But why do people constantly, for example, like there are drug addicts who go to rehab they kill themselves for a month or two, they come out sober and then they go back again and again and again. So cycle after cycle after cycle. So do they lose this light? Do they lose this resilience? Or is there nobody helping them? Or is there a darker force that is taking over them, taking over their brains? That is actually a very relevant question. I am not ready for that, but I'll do my best to answer it. <laughs> I, I think when we talk about addiction, it's, it's, a, it's a different issue, right? You talk about people who are alcoholic and uh, people who are on drugs. Of course, you, what you ask me is about drugs, but I think that addiction happens in all levels. Like yes. It could be sex, 
yeah, gaming or um, smoking or whichever. But of course, drugs will be seems the worst at this point because it's illegal and you have um, bad for society and, many, and bad for economy and health. Um, I would like to do. I will answer in two ways. Okay, if I can. Uh, number one, people who are addicted to drugs is not because they don't have the light. Is because it could be is is purely psychological and social in because of some situation they are being exposed before, and drug has become a coping mechanism for them. Yeah, and and of course, it's a form of escapism. Yeah, we can say that maybe they have went through some crisis, like in overseas. We talk about war veterans who come back from war. Yes. Right? They become drug addicts. They cannot function in the world because this trauma are still playing in their head. Yes. But we could quick to judge that because they are drug addicts, they are useless for society, they're not contributing. It go against the way I feel because I'm working so hard for my family and now you are just a drug addict, you know? So we don't know what's happening in their life. So if you ask a question that are they in a place of darkness? Yes, definitely. Do they have what? What about their light? I think their light is inside there, but it has it is still trying to shine, you know. And of course, we need to look at social support systems because it's always easier to go back to some a place of familiarity. Yeah, and maybe the place of familiarity would be the friendships they form in drugs, the exclusivity and that safe place they think that it is, they do not need to deal with the problem. And if I, I can expand on that when I say about point number two is alcoholism. Many people in Singapore are alcoholic or they are facing problems with alcoholism and they do not know it. And it's one of the main issues. But because alcoholism, alcohol is allowed, that's why that it is not as bad as drug, right? But look at the impact of alcohol. Mm. It's a stress coping mechanism. So why do people drink or celebrate? But out of the normal celebratory, celebratory experiences, many people are addicted to the process because um, they're finding ways to celebrate, to drink. That's running away. That's a, phase, that's a place of familiarity and they do not want to do some, some things. Yeah, so they keep going back to that ritual, to that cycle. So to answer a question, you ask about light and people who are addic addicted. I'll still say that there are many people I have, not say I work with, but been exposed to, because I don't work with people with addiction. That's not my uh, specialty. I work with more with people with trauma. Okay, and we have seen many people who have recovered from addiction and they bounce back. And now they are coming out to share their stories and to give hope. So I would say that in a way that everybody have this light, but given the right support and the resources and training, which is psychological training and social support, they are able to bounce back and ignite the light. But we need to also look at many different issues, whether can we support them? 
Yeah, because many of these, uh, many of uh, people who have addiction problems or they when they are being discarded by some parts of society or social groups, they it's not they they go back to drugs. It's not because of drugs. <laughs> they go back to drugs. It's because of all these things that is telling them they are not good enough. They are not accepted. Wow, I I know what you mean. So it's like, firstly, you're saying drugs is their coping mechanism so everybody has a resiliency but uh, the resiliency can be triggered by an anchor such as Gabriel again or it could be triggered by a coping mechanism which is something that you use to get away and I think something that you shared before or I think everybody would know is like if you see a person who has a problem you got to get them out of the problem as soon as possible because they'll just keep getting deeper and deeper into that system right and then deeper and deeper they fall into depression, uh, self-doubt, um, the harder and harder it is to get them out of um, that, that situation because they'll use all kinds of coping mechanisms. It's probably not going to be only drugs really. It'll be a lot of other stuff that's going to help them. Like you said, negative friends, uh, negative environments, negative items, and then it gets harder and harder to get them out. Now, now I get what you mean. Um, I just wanted to close off this conversation with a few things I want because your story has been highly, highly inspiring. Uh, found Thank out you. a lot more about you. I want to know like, uh, let's just say today I introduce you to one of the friends I had who's between age 25 to 35. He's kind of lost in his life. He doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, let's look at it as two scenarios. One is he's doing a job. He's doing very, very well like you. Young, successful, and the only metric of success is promotions and money, but he hates it. But he's lost. He doesn't know what to do. And uh, you meet another guy who's doing something he absolutely hates, absolutely suffering in his job, or probably not even working, but just suffering. How do they find this um, light that you're talking about? How can they discover themselves if you had only three minutes with them to talk to them and help them? Well, first and foremost, I will say that many of my the students who come to the school to study are facing issues, some of them, <laughs> or people I coach, right? Yeah, and I think this is a common pressing problem for many people. So the first thing I will say is that you will always const- you if you are chasing the corporate ladder or you're cl- chasing success, you will always be chasing. Even if you have reached it, right, you're still chasing because that this is your mindset you have developed. So it's about all about the mindset because you already have a fixed mindset. And this fixed mindset may not be a byproduct of you, but it might be a byproduct of your parents, the society, your peers. So first thing first is, don't change anything yet, but start looking up for things that, you can, that will make a difference. No things, have conversations with people that are doing something different. Yeah. And if you have a friends around you who believe in the same thing that you do, then you will never get out of it because the social environment has already imprisoned you, right? And everybody, like pain and misery, they come together, right? Yeah. So look out for people that you admire. Look out for people who are doing what you, who are following their light. Yeah. And have conversations with them. Ask them whether that, can you become a mentor? Can you become a coach? And have these conversations. I think that's number one. And number two would be finding out at, is there something you're good at, which is your strengths? Are you playing according to your strengths? And can your strengths be aligned to something you believe in? For example, 
um, of course, it is a big leap of faith if I say that go and find solve a worse problem. A worse problem, you know. How about solving a problem that's around you first, within your social cycle, or within your work community? Find that problem and solve it. And if you are good at it, that could be an indication that you are good at that. And could it be expanded to a profession or a skill that you can explore later? That would be a an indication. Is is there a professional way that people can find their strengths? Because asking people to trial and error to find their strengths, I would say ninety percent people won't bother because they'll just say too busy or they procrastinate or they find that uh, they rather put food on the table more than uh, put happiness in their minds. So, is there a professional way they can find their strengths? Yes, there are ways. There are strengths assessment tools that you can use. Yeah, I will recommend. Uh, a free one that is called VIA Character Strengths. VIA stands for Values in Action. You can just go to viacorrector.org and you can do it. Or you can just Google VIA. VIA is part of positive psychology whereby there is a measurement of 24 strengths and everybody have these 24 strengths. It's a great place to start with and you will measure your top five strengths. And so for example, my top five strengths would be courage, spirituality, social intelligence, perspective, and curiosity. So I can use my strengths to, <clears throat> in my role as a therapist or as a coach or as a person who's running the school or the clinic, right? So I'll, even I can use my strength in conversations to engage people. Yeah. So if you find out your strengths, you will be able to have the first indication that what you're good at. And strengths is natural. You have them. And when you play according to your strengths, you hone your strengths better to become like a professional athlete in your level and you become the best version of yourself. Wow, I amazing. That, yeah, yeah that, that's very, very helpful. I mean, personally, I know my strengths and I think that's the one reason why I feel I'm not successful, but I just feel that I, I know what I'm doing on a day-to-day and that's why I feel successful by myself. doesn't mean I'm successful yet, but I, I feel successful because I know what I'm doing at least. But that, that's success. Yeah. Because you feel it amazing. Really. Yeah, yeah. That's something that I tell everybody, but nobody really understands what, what I'm trying to say. Um, mm. I want to just uh, close this off by um, asking you something that you mentioned to me as well. You talked about strength-focused and weakness-focused um, topics. Can you share a bit more about that? And then if uh, I have listeners who are more keen to find out, they can talk to you more, they can have a chat with you. What's that about? Okay. As we has been, we grew up in a society that is based on problem solving. And if you, we survive based on having this mindset called negativity bias. So we are hardwired in our mind to pay attention to things that will go wrong. And not only that things will go wrong, we pay attention to things that are dangerous. So it will help to increase our odds of survival. So it's evolutionary for since 200,000 years ago. But why is this important? It's because that when we find fault or look for things to solve, when we look at ourselves, we also look at ourselves and find fault with ourselves, find fault in our relationships, find fault with our um, workplaces. We find fault, you know, and compl- so that's why people complain, right? Yes. So, yeah, so in terms of performance, many people think that they can perform better when they solve a weakness. Okay? 
I would say that that is not true. Because if you spend a long X period of time to find out what you're not good at, and then you try to become better at that, in that expense, you do not develop your strengths. So you don't get to shine. You become a mediocre. You're always an average. But instead, focusing on your weakness, because I guarantee you, let's say you have weakness A, right? You try to solve it. After you solve weakness A, you start to develop weakness B. Then you start to solve weakness B, then weakness C will appear. It's a never-ending story. But I'm not suggesting that we, we should not pay attention to our weakness. We should to be mindful, to solve them to the minimum level, Okay, if let's say that you have weakness of uh, some people say that or oh, some people tell you that oh you are too honest, okay, and you want to be authentic, and you just tell people your honest opinion, but at the same time you have no social intelligence or you make very harsh statement, do you think that is a strength or that's a weakness? So the but it will be a weakness. So if you continue not to solve it, that might be a problem, you know, but just be mindful of that that. Hold back on that weakness, don't do it so much, but spend your energy on what you're good at. And this is where you're building your muscles, you're building your resilience, you're building your well-being and your natural performance. Absolutely true. Uh, why I say this is because I have a particular use case right now. Uh, he's my best staff, uh, super hardworking guy, extremely, um, really, really good with analytics. He's actually a scientist. Um, he's highly, highly introverted. So he's never ever been half close to being an extrovert at all. And he's been forcing himself to train to become an extrovert because he works with me and I'm an extrovert. So he's been trying to follow me. He's been putting uh, three tasks a day, which is to open conversations three times a day, uh, speak to three different people every day. But I know what you mean. It's so hard for him to develop a weakness when uh, it was so easy for him to develop strengths. So like strengths for him is like analytics. He could learn how to do uh, Excel pivot tables, Excel uh, uh, input analysis and all this really, really quickly because that is his forte. But uh, he was forcing himself to step away from that and instead force himself to try and be an extrovert because he thought that uh, to be good in my job, you have to be forcefully extroverted. Yeah, so that, that absolutely makes a lot, a lot of sense to me. Forcefully extroverted. Wow. Yeah. He's trying to force himself, but it's um, artificial. So, because you can see that every time he's trying to open a conversation, he thinks about what he's going to say. His facial expressions like mm. um, uh, start to cringe. He's thinking. But like extroverts, we don't have to really think. Conversations flow. Mm. Uh, but it's not, it's not a weakness. I always tell him it's not a weakness. Uh, you just have other strengths that we need to use and harness. Don't look at it as a weakness. Um, just to close this off, Stephen, I want to ask you, like, how can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? Um, and uh, what are the sources? So you have three different businesses. Tell us a bit more about like, how we reach you on each and what each business functions for you. I would rather say business, but each mission. How do they function? How do they find you to get some help, get some advice? Okay, so... Thank you for the question. I, so the first is the School of Positive Psychology. And you can go to the uh, URL, www.positivesite.edu.sg. And we are located in Orchard Road in Singapore. We also have uh, spaces in 
uh, Philippines, Japan, and Hong Kong. So if you're looking for higher education, in terms of what to upgrade yourself, what to become a better leader, a better um, coach or trainer, or you just want to increase your capacity in terms of how to tap onto your strength, but build a better well-being with more meaning in your life, and you want to share these skills using science and data to help people to become better versions of themselves for transformation, you can explore this site. And we offer courses from like three months to half a year to two years, depending on which level you want to go into, like master's degree, graduate diploma, or yeah. And it's a li- it will be a life-changing transformation. Yes. Yeah. Suddenly it sounds like a bit like, you know, cult by thought. <laughs> Yeah, plugging into a world-class knowledge because you fly in, instead of flying to Harvard or uh, Pennsylvania or the Ivy League universities, you fly in top-level psychologists to fly in to teach you and they are very engaging, inspiring. So in return, if you want to become a thought leader, opinion leader to help other people, whether it's a business, community or uh, in coaching, this is a course that you could explore. Secondly, if you are looking for help in some ways, want to talk to people because you felt that you have some trauma or you are looking for some sort of psychological support because you have some relationship issues or you are having problem working with your children due to learning issues or challenges. Thrive Psychology Clinic is good. You can just Google Thrive Psychology Clinic. We are located at Novena Royal Square. And um, it's, a, it's a nice building. Come in. I'm there once a week. <laughs> Take on clients. And the third one will be Nova Census. Nova Census is our um, whereby we go to the workplace and we talk about positive psychology transformation, leadership, consulting, and we do strength assessment, we build cultures, we introduce positive conflicts and disruption. So if you are in OD or you are in uh, people development, human capital, we work with uh, HR, we work with uh, people who want to transform their leaders or their workplaces. So that would be Novel Census. It's spelled as N-O-V-O-S-E-N-S-U-S. Novel Census. It means the new beginning, the new light. <laughs> Latin. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Don't worry. I will input links of uh, all these three sites for people to take a look at, understand, and they can reach out to you. Um, they can look at your websites for more information. Um, just want to say thanks very much for spending time to share so much about your story um, I would say it's kind of amazing what I've just heard for a person who's achieved um, this in the last 12 plus years um, to have gone through that childhood but uh, I would say that after 10 years of uh, working in headhunting and recruitment I realized that most of the people who are successful or fulfilled are people who've been through some form or some sort of uh, difficulty in your life if everything was smooth sailing they came from a rich family they had no trouble in school they went through life like a breeze they tend to have a very entitled mindset and they tend to have um, how would say they tend to have a lot of difficulty dealing with uh, trauma or like in my profession they they cannot accept retrenchment redundancies uh, seconds because they always think that they are better than everything else. Wow. They think that they're better than everything else. <laughs> yeah, because they always yeah. think that, okay, I, I, I come from good family. I went to a good mm. school. I never did badly. I climbed the corporate ladder and then I lose my job. How can it be possible? This is not possible. Mm. 
uh, government promised us that uh, if we did this, 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 and my parents told me that if I studied hard, I get first class, um, everything will be taken care of. But nobody ever mm-hmm. told us that economies are not straight lines. And um, companies that employ us ultimately can make their own decisions. They, we, don't, we are just another human being or another piece of human capital in their organizations. We can't think of ourselves as um, such amazing uh, uh, people except if you are like, let's just say you are the scientist that developed Tesla's uh, electric battery, for example. Yes, maybe you're someone amazing. But I believe that with science today, people can copy you, people can learn from you and people can learn as fast as you leave the company to pick up your technology. So nobody is indispensable today. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I want to say thank you very much for your time, Stephen. Um, and thank then um, I think we will have more chats coming soon. Yes, definitely. Uh, thank you for having me on your show, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you.